0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Happy opening week, Nats fans. Everyone at Walters is excited to see what the new season brings. But first, we've got the NCAA Championship Final tonight. Come early to grab a seat and enjoy the game on over 30 TVs.
1: Plan your opening day at Walters. Visit waltersdc.com and click on reservations. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring,
2: the best way to search for a candidate is Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the set. And the 2-2 pitch. Swing and a miss. He struck him out on a slider. Ruiz picks it up out of there and steps on home plate to complete the strikeout. And Patrick Corbin does an amazing job to get out of a jam in the third inning.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, April 4th, 2022. This is a season preview installment of Nats Chat. We have waited many, many months to be able to say that, but we now can say that. Along with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of Massinsports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We have a special guest coming up on the show, Nats reliever Sean Doolittle. Very much looking forward to that. We have our season predictions for the Nats. Mark and I will each put forth a record for the Nationals in the 2022 regular season. Take these predictions to Vegas and make yourself a lot of money. Guaranteed, or Tim Shovers will refund you your money. And we have a lot to get to here in terms of Nats news over the last few days. Uh, as we get set for what will be the 18th season of of Nationals baseball since the franchise came to Washington, D.C. Opening day this Thursday, April 7th, against the New York Mets at Nationals Park, a 405 1st pitch. 18 games in 18 days to begin the Nats' 2022 regular season. Mark, every baseball season is quite a ride, but this season, because of the lockout, because there are so few off days, this figures to be and especially challenging ride for every baseball team. We need to buckle up because uh, these next six months are going to be wild.
1: It really is, Hal. And I've, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, a month ago, early March, first couple of days of March, are we thinking for sure, hey, April 7th, we're going to have baseball and it's going to be 162 game season? I didn't know that for sure. I thought that this thing might drag on longer. I mean, it was a long, difficult winter Thankfully, it all got done. We don't even really haven't talked about it that much anymore. Honestly, it has barely been a subject here down in in West Palm at camp. It's just on, not on anybody's mind. They got it taken care of. They're now rushing to get ready for the season. But I gotta say, it has been a really quick spring, and I don't know that that's a good thing, especially for this team, which probably could have used another week at least to get some ducks in a row. There are a lot of guys who are. Hoping to be ready, but maybe aren't going to be fully ready. They've got some decisions to make about whether player X should be on the opening day roster or not. Like you said, 18 in a row to start the season is not ideal, especially when the first two series are Mets and Braves, the two front runners in the division. It's going to be a tough start to the season. And it's why, you know, as much as Mike Rizzo, David Martinez talk about, we're going to bring the best. Well, it's 28 North this year because they get an expanded roster. I think there's a caveat to it this year. It's the best and most ready 28. There are guys who are going to be a big part of this team over the course of a full season who are not going to be there on Thursday because they're just not quite there yet. They need a little bit more work. So as much as we love to obsess over who's on the opening day roster, it could look very different You know, by April 15th, certainly by May 1st. There's going to be a lot of guys who end up having more impact on the team this season than some of the ones who will be there on opening day.
0: Well, if you are searching for reasons for optimism for a hot national start to the season, know that the Mets already are in midseason form in terms of their season falling apart. Jacob deGrom injured. Max Scherzer is injured, not to the extent that deGrom is, but both guys potentially could miss this season opening series. We'll see. And the Braves are going to be without a key reliever from last season, Luke Jackson. He's dealing with an elbow ailment. He was outstanding for them last year. So listen, in this season, we will cling to whatever we can in terms of reasons for optimism with the Nats. So unique spring training, to be sure, because of the condensed nature of camp. This really is a unique lean-up to this Nats season. First time, really, I guess, since 2011 that we're entering a national season with at least modest expectations. I know a lot of people are expecting this to be a very bad season. Obviously, players and coaches and the manager and the general manager aren't going to come out and say, yeah, you know, we expect to only win 65 games. But in your conversations with people at Nats camp, both on and off the record, what's the sense that you get in terms of internal, truthful expectations for this Nats season?
1: Well, I think you see both sides of it. You see genuine optimism when they start looking at and talking about some of the young building blocks that they do have. Cabert Ruiz, I think, has looked really good. Capped off on Sunday. Four-hit game looked very good. He's going to be a big part of this moving forward. Obviously, Juan Soto is the star of the show. He's ready to go. Nothing to be concerned about there. And some of the young pitching Cade Cavalli. I know there was the big blow-up last week, but in the bigger picture, it's hard not to be excited about him and what he's going to bring to them eventually. Joanna Doan, who is a name we haven't talked about a lot, he's going to pitch on Monday. And depending on how things work out, there's a chance he's actually in the opening day rotation. If not, we are certainly going to be talking about him at some point this season. So I think there is some legitimate optimism about part of what this foundation is going to be like, even if it's not there from the get-go. But as the season plays out, they're going to see that. On the other hand, there is more so privately than publicly. A lot of legitimate concern about what we were just talking about. Starting the season with that rough schedule, with a lot of guys who are not fully ready yet, with a pitching staff that certainly is not up to par yet, I think there's genuine concern about the pitching staff. They've been hit pretty hard down here. And you don't want to judge a whole lot on spring training stats, of course, but particularly in, when it comes to the rotation, there are just not a lot of sure things here. And it could be a revolving door. The five guys we see that start the first five games, three of them may not even be in the rotation by the end of the month. And so I think there is concern about that. I think there's a feeling of they need to weather the storm here early in April. And then if they can get through that, the schedule eases up, some other guys start to get ready for them, other guys get healthy, that it could get a lot better as the season plays out. But it's going to be a rough start to the season. I think a lot of people are concerned about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, we don't, Sugarcoat things on this podcast. okay? the truth is the pitching has the potential to be atrocious. All right. And it was really bad last season. It could be even worse this season. At least last season, you had Max Scherzer for four months and he was quite good. You don't have Max Scherzer anymore. You don't have anything close to Max Scherzer anymore. And like we said, 18 games in 18 days to begin the season. If your starters aren't eating up innings early on, your bullpen has the potential to be overworked in April. And this is a bullpen that, you know, on paper maybe could be good, but also could be another one of these rough Nats bullpens. And we've grown accustomed to those over the years. So the pitching figures to be the biggest challenge. You mentioned Cade Cavalli. The Nats on Saturday did reassign Cade Cavalli. To minor league camp. I thought it was interesting, though, what Davey Martinez said, essentially suggesting that Cade is even more ready for the majors than maybe even Davey thought. So it does really feel like we will be seeing him sooner rather than later. Like you said, Adone could be pitching at the major league level sooner rather than later. We know that Patrick Corbin will be the Nats opening day starter. That has been made official. Uh, Davey made that official on Saturday. And so, in terms of the rotation right now, and you know, things can change here, but Corbin is your number one, Josiah Gray, your number two. Where are we with Eric Fetty and the tightness on the side?
1: Seems like everything's going to be okay there. He threw off a bullpen mound on Sunday. As far as I know, everything went fine. And as long as there's no setbacks, he's going to start the finale on Tuesday against the Mets. And so that would, in theory, line him up to be either the number four or number five starter to open the season. There was some concern there for about a day or two. If that was anything more serious than that, that maybe he wouldn't be ready. Now, they're going to be cautious with it because... They don't want to do anything that could risk losing him any longer than that. So if it does mean missing one start and maybe Adone takes that spot, I think they're prepared for that to happen. But it seems like good signs here in the last 24 hours with him. Annabelle Sanchez, I know the last outing was awful <laughs> and he's got one more. He's going to pitch on a backfield instead of facing the Cardinals again. As it stands, it looks like he's lined up to be the number three or number four starter against the Mets. That may just be by default than anything. This is why I'm saying just because somebody's in the opening day rotation doesn't mean they're going to be there for long. But for now, he is ready in terms of his arm strength and his ability to give them innings. So I think he is part of that. Josh Rogers, who pitched Thursday against the Mets. Now, he's not actually scheduled for another start here before camp ends. And Davey's a little bit vague about what they're going to do with him. I don't know if that's a just try to get him a simulated game somewhere and then he ends up as the number 5 starter or maybe he actually opens in the bullpen as like a left-handed palo espino swingman type who could pitch multiple times. I'm not 100% confident in what's going to happen there, but it's those guys and then maybe Joanna Dome. Those are the only ones left in terms of starters. And so, yeah, on paper it is concerning. It may not look great right now, but again, within a few weeks that could start to change as some guys get healthier and as they're maybe more willing to make some move to call up others.
0: Yeah. If you're curious about Steven Strasburg, uh, remember Davey Martinez on March 23rd said that the expectation for Strasburg this season, or, or the goal, I don't even know if expectation is the right word to use, but goal is for him to make 20 to 25 starts. Strasburg will be remaining at the Nat Spring Training Facility in West Palm Beach, Florida to begin the season. So it's going to be an extended spring training, which will be more like a normal spring training for Strasburg. So I would assume we shouldn't even be thinking about seeing him pitch for the Nats at the major league level until May. Joe Ross is out with his elbow issues. We don't know when he might be good to go. Ross was said to be out for six to eight weeks. This was on March 13th that we learned that uh, he had undergone the arthroscopic surgery to remove a bone spur in his right elbow. He underwent the surgery on March 7th. So that's where things stand with those guys. I mean, man, it's like when you said Anibal Sanchez could be the number three starter, I mean, boy, that is a frightening thought. Didn't pitch in the majors last year, was signed by the Nats on a minor league contract just a few weeks ago, and he could be your number, your number three. I mean, that's frightening uh, to consider what could be happening here. So with the bullpen, Actually, seems like, I guess there's a little more certainty with the bullpen. We know more or less who the guys will be. Now, Tyler Clippard has been reassigned to minor league camp, as I know you suspected he might be, but that seems to be more a readiness thing and that he'll be called up to the major league team sooner rather than later. Is that uh, safe to say?
1: Yeah, it could be very soon. So he finally made his game debut on Sunday and closed out a win Over the Astro, So, that's good and he looked fine. He just hasn't had a lot of time yet because he signed late. He was supposed to pitch and then there was a rain out the other night. So, he just needs some work. So, he's agreed, you know, when you sign a minor league deal, there's sort of an understanding that you would be willing to go to AAA for at least a little bit with the expectation that you could be called up quickly. So, he's here for now. He's going to stay with them as long as he can. He could pitch in one more game here, then go to Rochester, make a couple of appearances. I think ideally they'd like for him to actually go back-to-back days at least once. But, you know, April 7th is opening day. By April 15th, Tyler Clippard could very much be in the bullpen and be a big part of it. So that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about here in terms of the best 28 who are ready as opposed to just necessarily who the best 28 are. But Sean Doolittle, who we we're going to talk to later, and he mentions it in our conversation, he feels like he's ready to go. He pitched on Sunday. Steve Ciszek has pitched a lot. He's ready to go. Tanner Rainey, Kyle Finnegan have had plenty of work. They're going to be fine. And there are a lot of other guys. They had a ton of relievers here in camp. Ten of them are going to be on the opening day roster because it's expanded and because I think they know with no off days and with the starting rotation that may not be going deep a whole lot, they need as many arms as possible. So who knows who from that group is actually going to make it and who's going to achieve what for them. But at the very least, you know they seem to have three or four guys at the back end to start the year with some experience who have had enough time to build up this spring and should be good to go.
0: When it comes to the pitching this year, to me – If Josiah Gray pitches well, if Kate Cavalli gets called up, pitches well, I think that's a win. I think anything else is kind of like whatever. And I know that that may make for a very rough season. But as we talk about the state of the Nats and kind of what really matters, like I don't think wins and losses matter this year. To me, I'm looking at this season the way we looked at the final two months of last season. I don't think you get caught up in the record because I don't think the record's going to be very good. But if you could exit this season feeling good about what you have in Gray and Cavalli, I think that's huge for this team. Do you think that the Nats look at it this way? I mean, obviously they want as many guys to pitch well as possible, but do you think kind of like the quote-unquote success or failure of the Nats starting pitching this season really is about Gray and Cavalli?
1: I think to some extent it is, yes, because obviously they are the two closest to big league ready who are going to be a part of the long-term picture here, and this is the year where in Cavalli's case, he needs to make his major league debut. And then in Gray's case, he needs to start showing some consistent success. So yes, I think that. But I think they would also tell you, and you can agree with them or not on this, but I think they would also say that having Strasburg healthy and pitching well and having Corbin returning to some semblance of a quality big league pitcher would be just as important because of their contracts. They're not going anywhere. Strasburg is here for five more years. Corbin is here for three more years. So... If there is a path to them being a contender sooner than we all might think, I think those two would have to be a part of it as well. There isn't going to be enough young pitching to completely take over the rotation. And to be honest, they're probably not going to go spend a lot of money next winter on a big name starter, not when you still have Strasburg and Corbin making the money that they are, unless one or both of them are so bad or so hurt that it's almost like you've given up on them. So I think they would tell you that Strasburg and Corbin's development this year and health this year is equally as important as uh, Cavalli and Gray. And you know, when it comes to the importance of the record this year, I agree with you, except to say I think it's more important that this team play better over the second half of the season than in the first half. If they did somehow play well in the first half, kind of hang in there a little bit and then really collapse in the second half, I think that's worse than if it goes the other way around. I want to see this team be better at the end of the year than it is at the beginning. I want to see more pieces to the puzzle have emerged over the course of the season in the second half than the first.
0: One more on the pitching. So you mentioned Johan Adone. Adone is the guy who started the Nats regular season finale last year. The Nats recalled Adone from AAA Rochester to start the final game of the Nats 2021 season. He had thrown a total of just 18 innings above the high A level in the minors last season. And he actually did pretty well. Ramon Vasquez on the lines at first in the pitch. Swing and a miss at a slider. And down
3: goes Kike Hernandez. That ball is immediately underhanded by Avila to the Nationals bat boy. That'll be authenticated as well as the first strikeout of the Major League career of Johan Acuña. What a breaking ball that was. Bottom dropped out of it. Good thing about a veteran catcher, Avila knew right away to throw that ball to the dugout.
0: Now the Nats lost the game. It was a 7-5 loss to Boston at Nationals Park, but two runs in five and two-thirds innings. He had nine strikeouts versus three walks, a hit-by-pitch, and a wild pitch. The Nats signed Adone as an amateur free agent out of the Dominican Republic in July 2016. He's not a particularly highly regarded prospect, certainly in baseball and even not necessarily in the Nats organization. But I know he has looked pretty good. I thought he looked pretty good in that game against the Red Sox to close out the Nats season. What do you think the Nats think that they have in Adone?
1: I think they think there could be a little diamond in the rough there. Davey was talking about him on Sunday and about how He's got like some physical presence, for one thing. He's a big, strong kid, but he also has a little quiet confidence to him. And let's remember that game against the Red Sox, it's game 162. It may have meant nothing to the Nationals. It meant everything to the Red Sox. They had to win that game to clinch a playoff berth. They were throwing everything they had at him, and a don't is not the reason they lost that game. He had that lineup pretty baffled along the way. A really impressive performance. And he's still raw. He hasn't had a whole lot of minor league experience, but they seem to be thinking of him in more the near term than the long term right now, which tells me they think he's mature enough to handle it. So yeah, I do think they think highly of him. Now, is he you know future number one or number two starter? Probably not. I don't think they view him in the same category. They'd put a Cavalli or a Gray or even a Cole Henry or Jackson Rutledge who are going to come later on down the road. But he's definitely in the conversation here and somebody that they think could prove to be a much more effective big league pitcher than maybe the scouting reports and the prospect rankings would have you believe.
0: Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons 3535, or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself
3: The pitch to Robles, swung on, belted, deep left field,
0: way back.
3: This one is gone.
0: Goodbye. All right, let's get to Nationals position players. So as much uncertainty as there is with the Nats for this upcoming season, the lineup in terms of the configuration in the field seems pretty set. Kbert Ruiz at catcher, Josh Bell at first, Cesar Hernandez at second, Alcides Escobar at short, Michael Franco at third. And then the outfield from right to left, Juan Soto, Victor Robles And Lane Thomas, we have had a positive Victor Robles development in recent days. Davey Martinez this past Thursday saying, I want Victor to be our center fielder. Now, you know, I think some of this may be by default. There aren't many other true viable options, but I guess any surprise that Davey was kind of that verbal and declarative about that? You know, like Victor, he's back to sort of being the guy in center. I mean, I remember last year, when Davey essentially said that Victor and Andrew Stevenson were about to start splitting time in center field. Uh, it never quite played out that way. Stevenson now is off to A. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But how about Davey sort of giving a vote of confidence in Victor Robles the other day?
1: Yeah, I think it's a calculated thing. I mean, look, they have invested a lot in him over the years, and I think they really do want him to be the guy. They're better off as an organization if Victor Robles becomes a decent big league center fielder for them. So After everything he went through last year, I think they do genuinely appreciate the attitude that he took down there to Rochester with him. He played well, did all the things they asked him to do. And so I think there's a little bit of reward for that by saying, hey, you know what? You're a center fielder again. Doesn't mean he's going to get that position for the entire season, nothing set in stone. But to at least begin the year, yeah, you're going to be back out there. Go out there, play your defense that we know you can play, play smart baseball, which has been such a point of emphasis with him in the field and on the bases. And then just do enough of the little fundamental things right at the plate. They're going to ask him to hit ninth in this lineup. And there was a moment in Sunday's game that I actually thought was a good example. Take it for what it's worth, one spring training at bat. But he comes up with runners on first and second, nobody out. He's facing Justin Verlander. This is a situational at bat, if ever there was one, especially for a number nine hitter. He worked a walk out of it. Low to the bases. Cesar Hernandez then came up and doubled down the left field line. Two runs scored. If he can just have that kind of quality plate appearance in the right situations, I was even thinking at one point maybe he's going to try to put a bunt down and get it past the pitcher's mound on the right side and beat it out. Like they want that kind of stuff from him. Doesn't need to be a star at the plate. Doesn't need to hit 17 homers for them like he did as a rookie. Just be right in the right situations. They're really trying to instill a lot of confidence in him. Now let's see if come May. 1st or May 15th, he's hitting 203 and swinging wildly at breaking balls and making mistakes in the field and, you know, with a 52% stolen base rate, then that's going to be a problem and they may have to adjust again. But for now, I think they are committed to him in center. And I also think they like Lane Thomas and left defensively as opposed to center. But I'll also say this, and this is just hunch on my part. It's not any actual knowledge. When it comes to left field and third base in particular, I would not be shocked if they still pick up somebody before this is all said and done. I think they are looking at who's out there, and I'm not saying this is the guy, but Justin Upton was DFA'd by the Angels the other day. If he clears waivers, the Angels have to pay him $28 million, then any other team can sign him for the league minimum. You know who drafted Justin Upton? Mike Rizzo in Arizona, number one pick. He has raved about him for years. Do I think that makes the most sense for this team? I don't know, but I wouldn't be shocked if that or something on a lesser scale, if they are still looking for other possibilities to help them out either in left field, which could affect Robles in the end, or on the infield where they do have some questions. There could be a lot of movement here before opening day.
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody would be stunned. By what you just said, I think people should be aware the Justin Upton of today is very different than the Justin Upton of just a few years ago. His last three seasons have not gone well. He's going into his age 34 season. You know, look, if you get him and he plays reasonably well, maybe that's another potential trade chip for you. But yeah, there would be another mid-30s player on the supposed rebuilding. That's how about the Angels, by the way? Boy, are they just pathetic. Huh? I mean, they are wasting a generational player, maybe an all-time player in Mike Trout. I mean, they just cannot get their act together, it feels like, with anything that they do. All right. I mentioned Andrew Stevenson. I had to laugh. So you've said this to me many times over the years. One of the more overrated things in baseball is a team's opening day roster. It is this evolving organism. It changes so many times over the course of the season. And so I got a kick out of, on Saturday, This uh, treatment of Andrew Stevenson like he had been sentenced to prison or something. People talking about tears in the clubhouse and Andrew Stevenson's been with the team all these years. The Nats on Saturday announced that Stevenson had cleared outright waivers and been assigned to AAA Rochester. He had 48 hours to decide whether to accept the assignment or opt for free agency. He cleared waivers. That sort of suggested what the market was saying. And so on Sunday, we find out that he has accepted his assignment to Rochester. He's not going anywhere. He hasn't been cut by the Nats. He hasn't been sent to prison for the rest of his life. And the truth is, he'll probably be back up playing for the Nats sooner rather than later. Why did everyone act like this was the end of Andrew Stevenson on Saturday, crying in the clubhouse and everything? He's probably going to be playing for them within a week,
1: Mark. I wouldn't go that far, about a week, because he is off the 40-man roster now. So it does require some machinations to get him back. But what I would say, and I was in the room as this was all playing out, and I saw there were genuinely stunned reactions. I'm not just talking about from media members. I'm talking about from teammates. When he walked back into the room and started telling guys that he had been cut, the reaction was genuinely shock. And I think some of that is thinking this means that he is gone for good. Generally, that would be what would happen for a guy who's out of options like that And until sort of the true terminology of it got out, you kind of realized it might be different. But I think also there was a lot of shock among us and even some fans as we started reporting it, inferring something that may have been a little premature, which is there were three outfielders still left in camp, the backup outfielders, Stevenson, Yadiel Hernandez, and everybody's favorite, Gerardo Parra. And the thought among that would be, well, of the three Stevenson is most likely to make the team because of his defense, because of his base running. He's been such a good pinch hitter the last few years. So for him to get cut first, I think led some people to believe, wait a minute, you're telling me Gerardo Parra is going to make this team over Andrew Stevenson? What are you doing? Now, we'll see. It could still happen. But the sense I get is that actually only one of those two, Yadiel or Gerardo, makes the team because they need a true backup infielder. With A. Ray Adrianza nursing a, a strained quad, and it's not official, but he would have to make a pretty significant recovery in the next 24 hours to be ready for opening day. So if he's on the IL to start the year, the only backup infielder they would have would be D. Strange Gordon, who I think is going to make the team, but they look at him as a utility guy. So they need to go get a backup infielder, either calling somebody up from internally, uh, Lucius Fox, Luis Garcia, Adrian Sanchez, or going outside the organizations. I was just speculating earlier. Which they could do. But that only leaves one more spot in the outfield, is what I'm trying to get to here. So don't just think that this means that Para and Yadel Hernandez are on the team because Andrew Stevenson isn't. I don't think that's going to be the case. I'm glad to see Stevenson's not going anywhere. I think he has the ability to be a productive and important player. But I also got to say, and I think we've talked about this over the winter, once you knew the DH was coming to the National League, pinch hitting is no longer an important skill, for better or worse. And that was Andrew Stevenson's best skill. And all of a sudden, if there just aren't going to be opportunities for that, I think his value within the organization went down.
0: He has been an elite pinch hitter. Last three regular seasons, Andrew Stevenson, 76 plate appearances as a pinch hitter. On base percentage, 434. Slugging percentage, 529. I mean, that is a valuable skill. But like you said, the importance of that skill has been diminished. But uh, yes, you don't have to send your goodbye cards to Andrew Stevenson just yet. He is a uh, Still with the organization. You know, it's funny you talk about Yadiel and uh, Gerardo. Para is only a year older than Yadiel. Like, it's easy to kind of lose sight of that. Yadiel was pretty good for the Nats last year offensively. So I'd like to see some more of him. But yeah, I mean, Yadiel is not some, you know, 20-something up-and-comer here. Like, he's an established guy. You know, he played, obviously, uh, in Cuba for a while. So that'll be interesting to see. So with Adrianza, I know initially we were told, and of course we've been told this so many times over the years with Nats injuries, well, it's not that big of a deal, this quadriceps injury, but it looks like it may land him on the injured list. Is that correct?
1: Watching it live in Port St. Lucie, he pulled up lame running down the line, then saw him walk out of the clubhouse that evening and he was limping considerably and then saw him the next day still not walking great. So I think he's trying to tell them that he thinks he could be ready, but we're running out of time here. And is it again, is this worth it just to be on the opening day roster? I think they have to keep that in mind. It's not the end of the world if you have to miss 10 days to start the season, especially for backup infielder. But like I said, there's a domino effect of that because they do need another backup infielder for those guys. And I don't think they want to look at D. Strange Gordon in those terms. Now, the bizarre thing is because the AAA season starts before the major league season this year due to the lockout. A bunch of guys, including Lucius Fox and Luis Garcia, already left town to go to Rochester. So if one of them needs to come back, they'd probably just meet the team in D.C. And oh, by the way, they're supposed to get you know workouts in Rochester. It snowed there. They couldn't even work out the other day. So why that all had to happen yet, I don't know. But part of it is this bizarre nature this year. Typically, the minor league season starts several days after the big league season. This year, AAA starts two days beforehand. And double A, single A actually starts on the same day as the big leaguers do.
0: Hey, guys, it's Al Goldie for Window Nation. Get your degree in savings during Window Nation's spring break sale. Get two free windows for every two windows that you buy for as many as you need and make no down payment and pay no interest for 24 months. Just call 866-90NATION or visit WindowNation.com. Dot com. As you surely know, we have been having very up and down temperatures lately. With up and down temperatures, it's difficult to stay comfortable in your home with old drafty windows. The longer that you have old drafty windows, the more money that you waste on your heating and cooling bills. Window Nation has saved customers over $60 million on energy bills. Buy two windows, get two free. Pay nothing for two years. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two full years. Save thousands. These are savings that you'll only see once this year. Window Nation has installed over a million windows and has an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that Al Goldie sent you.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all
3: facing Josh Bell. First pitch, driven to deep right field. Sanchez going back, looking up, it's going, going, and gone! Goodbye!
0: Bang! Soon goes Bell! Home run number 27. So, I don't think either one of us is optimistic about the Nats pitching. I do have optimism with the Nats lineup. I think the Nats might actually be decent offensively, maybe even good offensively. The Nats as a team finished last season third in the National League in team-weighted runs created plus. We talked about this a lot. The hitting was good, maybe even improved after the sell-off in late July. It was really odd how that happened, but Soto caught fire. Bell really started going. You know, a guy like Lane Thomas ended up being really productive. So you think about the lineup this season, Soto, Bell, Cruz. I mean, that's a pretty good one, two, three punch. I think that stacks up well with a lot of one, two, three punches in baseball. If Lane Thomas does even close to what he did last year, if Cabo Ruiz who seems like an excellent contact hitter at this point, we've seen certainly signs of that, does as we all hope that he does. And if you get something offensively out of a Seysaw Hernandez or an Alcides Escobar or a Michael Franco, I think the Nats might be pretty good offensively. What's your sense on the Nats offensively for this season?
1: Yeah, I think it can be. Now, this spring, they've actually looked pretty inept for most of the spring. And then all of a sudden, on Sunday, it came together really well against Justin Verlander and some major league relievers that the Astros were putting out there. So that was a nice sign. Cabert Ruiz, I think, is the real deal, certainly as a hitter. Incredible bat-to-ball skills. He took a Justin Verlander high fastball and drove it to left center field for a single. It was a Juan Soto type of swing. I'm not comparing the two overall, but it was the kind of hit you expect from Juan Soto against an elite starting pitcher to do that. He then hit a homer later in the game off of uh, Hector Nears, who's been a late inning big league reliever for quite a while. They really think highly of him so much so that they're going to hit him fifth behind those big names you just mentioned. And there are going to be a whole lot of opportunities for him to drive in runs. So I think that is the biggest part of it. We know Soto, everything he does. Nelson Cruz has been slow going this spring. He did double on Sunday. I think we kind of know what he is. Maybe he's not top of the line, Nelson Cruz anymore, but he's still going to be a threat there. Josh Bell, he's going to have a slump at some point. He is kind of streaky, but in the big picture, you know what his numbers are going to be in the end. You hope that Lane Thomas you know, wasn't a complete fluke flash in the pan. I think Cesar Hernandez is huge in this equation. Can he get on base in front of the big guys? If not, how long do they stick with that? Or if Thomas is doing a better job, does he get bumped up to the leadoff spot at some point? I think that would be Really interesting to see the bottom of the order could be kind of shaky. You could have a lot of those, you know, seven, eight, nine quick innings and can't turn the lineup over kind of stuff. But I think there's enough there to believe that they're going to win games through their offense, probably more than their pitching staff. And they may have to do that because there could be a decent number of six to five, seven to six games that this team has to win.
0: Yeah, very much. KB Ruiz in his time with the Nats last season didn't set the world on fire with his hitting, but we did see the bat-to-ball skills. He only struck out four times in 89 plate appearances with the Nats last season. So even with the lack of production, you got a sense of what he could be as a batter. All right, so we will give you our predictions for the Nationals' record for the 2022 season in a bit, but we now want to give to you our conversation with one of the more popular Nationals, Sean Doolittle. He was kind enough to join us, and uh, we give you that conversation right now. Two little sets. He kicks, he delivers, and a swing and a fly ball left center field. Robles to his right
3: on the run there. He's calling for it, and he makes the catch. And a curly W's in the box. The Nationals take game one of the 2019 World Series. Sean Doolittle with a 1-2-3 bottom of the ninth inning. He retires all four men that he faces. And the Nationals on the field to celebrate a victory. Our final score, the Washington Nationals 5, the
0: Houston Astros. Four. All right. Very pleased to welcome to the Nats Chat Podcast right now. One of the best relievers in Nationals history. He is one of the more popular players in Nats history. He was a key member of the 2019 World Series champion Nats, and he is back with the Nats for the 2022 season. Sean Doolittle is on the show. Hey, Sean, appreciate your time very much, man. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming on. So what has it been like for you being back with the Nats? I know it hadn't been that long since you had been with the team, but uh
5: here you are back with the team again. It's been great, man. Spring training has been a blast. There've been days where it feels like I never left, you know, just the familiarity I have with the organization and and people up and down uh, the organization. And then there's other days where it feels like I was gone for quite a while. A lot of new faces in the clubhouse, you know, getting to know names and faces and, but uh, it's been really good, man. I think we got an awesome mix of guys and, um, It just feels right, man. It feels really good to be coming home. My wife and I are so excited about it.
1: I know as we're getting closer to opening day, you're probably starting to think about what the emotions are going to be like being back at Nationals Park. Now, you did get to come back last year with the Reds. It was early in the season. There was a, like, I think it was only 5,000 fans were there at the time, so it wasn't quite the full thing. But I mean, the team went all out. They gave you the tribute video. They gave you some framed photos, a signed jersey. So what I'm curious here is now that you're back, did the team ask you to give him back all that stuff?
5: <laughs> yeah, that actually the Jersey that they gave me, that was signed. They took it back and they got it dry cleaned So all the, uh, the autographs are are no longer on it. And so I think it's hanging in the locker right now. <laughs> that was one of the highlights of my career. I didn't even pitch in that series. I was actually coming into the game. I think that night, the first night of that series and as I got to the gate of the bullpen, they started to pull the tarp, and we ended up getting rained out, and I ended up not pitching. But that video and being able to come out and meet Davy uh, and Zim and Huddy at home plate and you know get some presents, man, it was way more than I expected. Probably way more than I deserved, to be honest. But I absolutely, I get emotional still thinking about it. And um, yeah, the emotions on Opening Day are going to be are going to be a lot. I'm really excited about it already. I know we have a job to do, but I'm excited to get back to Nas Park and see the fans and uh, get the season started.
0: Please turn your
2: attention to the field and welcome back to Time All-Star.
0: are always so interesting for us as like fans and observers to talk about because they're like these evolving organisms, you know, and how a team's bullpen is in April might be different than how the bullpen is in September. We hear all the time about roles for relievers. How much does it matter to you what your role is in a bullpen? I mean, do you just kind of view yourself as, hey, I'm here to get outs? Or do you like to know specifically like which innings a manager has in mind for you and, you know,
5: what your general sort of uh, task in that bullpen is? Well, it's really awesome when you're pitching well enough you know, to be the guy at the back end of the game and know that you're going to pitch the ninth inning. But like, you know, I think really like what it comes down to is just the communication with the manager and the game plan that you put together, you know, following that throughout the game. And my communication with Davey had always been really good. And um, I think like the game has evolved so much now that there's probably less than, I said, there's very few teams that still have like, a set seventh inning guy and a set eighth inning guy and a set ninth inning guy. So what we've been you know, talking about in camp is almost having chunks of the lineup that a guy in our bullpen might match up favorably with. And so we can kind of chop the game up in the back half of the game. And, you know, you're sitting down there and instead of focusing on maybe what inning it is, you're focusing on what part of the lineup might be coming up next inning or the inning after that. And so you're kind of, you know, mentally and physically preparing for that. I think, like I said before, like the biggest thing is just that communication going into the game and everybody
1: understanding, you know, kind of where they slot in based on the opposing team's lineup. So I know you've come into spring throwing harder than you normally have in spring, at least the last few years, uh, kind of consistently 93 with your fastball. You're also trying to use breaking stuff more, change up more. So you've only had a couple of true games to see how that all plays but from a physical standpoint like a preparation standpoint where do you feel you're at as we approach opening day
5: i'm ready man i had that clunker against the astros and uh that was extremely frustrating but like in a sense it was the wake-up call that i think i needed because i'd been thrown so well you know in the off season and then coming into camp like my live bp went great my first outing of camp was really smooth and uh You know, I was starting to think I had it figured out, you know, so that was good. And since then, I've thrown twice in inter-squad games and uh, it's been really good. I've been really happy with how I'm moving and how I'm feeling, how I'm locating the ball in in and around the zone. I think the biggest thing, though, that it did was kind of uh, snap me out of training mode we had a little bit longer off season and, you know, I was working on some things. I came into camp and I I didn't realize it, but I think I was still a little bit in training mode. That first outing of camp or the first outing in the real spring training game went really good. So in my head, you know, I was like, all right, I want to make that even better. I want to try to do some things and make the action a little bit sharper. And, you know, you get out there on the mound and you start getting outside yourself and then the inning gets away from you a little bit. And it's tough to, it's tough to, you know, change that mindset in the middle of an inning. And it just got away from me and uh, I came out of the game and I was really frustrated because I just felt like I had gone in there with the wrong mental process, the wrong attitude going into that outing. And, you know, since then I think we've really flipped the switch and um, it's been really sharp. I'm really excited about where I'm at. And uh, I think I'm going to try to work into a couple more games here before we leave. But right now, like, I feel ready right now. We're talking with Sean Doolittle. I want to get your takes
0: on two relatively recent new rules in baseball that impact you as a reliever. The three batter minimum and the extra inning rule, the ghost runner rule. Where does Sean Doolittle stand on those two rules? Um, How much time do you
5: have? (laughs) We'll do the extra inning rule first. I don't like it. Mark and I have talked about this at length around the clubhouse, but I understand the reason why we decided to continue to use it this year Um, with the lockout shortening camp, you know, going into the season. We really want to protect guys and we don't want to have, you know, a 15 inning marathon game that, you know, throws the roster out of whack. And now guys are getting sent down you know, really because of a numbers thing, I understand that, you know, it can help prevent injuries. You're not overextending guys in extra innings. You know, I get it. But I hope maybe in the future that there's a little bit more room for compromise. I don't know if we play an ending or two straight up, you know, and then add the runner in, you know, the 11th or something like that or the 12th. Or do we start him at first base instead of second base? You know, now it's a frustrating thing as a reliever to come into a game with a runner on second base, you know, that didn't earn it there. It's not like he hit a double or you walked him and he stole second, you're just coming into a situation where Pandora's box is already wide open. And that team can score a run, the go-ahead run, without, without getting a hit. You know, a sack bunt or a ground ball to the right side that moves the runner and then a sack fly or, you know, a ground out or whatever. And that runs, and now your team's behind. So, I mean, like, the reality is... It's the same for everybody. And we got to go out there and get it done and, and just compete. It's a little bit of a weird situation coming into that role with a guy already on second base, but as relievers, I mean, we come into situations with runners on base all the time. So, you know, we'll be ready. The three batter minimum. I honestly don't know. I don't really like that one either. I think it disproportionately impacts lefty relievers. So like I might be a little biased with this, but like, you know, just talking to other guys around the league and, you know, calling back on my own experience. There's managers that are, you know, they're kind of looking for the exact right pocket to use a lefty reliever, you know, maybe like two of the next three hitters are lefties or something like that. They really don't want to have them face, you know, uh, a string of righties if they don't have to. So like, I think it's led to some guys being maybe like underused. And then, you know, now you're only pitching, once a week. It's it can be tough to get in a rhythm as a pitcher. I kind of fell into that role at times last year. I understand that it does slow the game down when you're making pitching changes, especially late in a ball game. But you know, there's also a lot of strategy there. And it's a it's about how you compose your roster and how you put your bullpen together, being able to match up your guys with their guys. And I don't know. I always liked that strategy of the game, but the reality is, if that's the rule, you know, I think, especially as a lefty, you got to pitch better and we got to be able to get readies out. So let's go.
1: So I'm with you on those. And with the three batter minimum, I actually think it doesn't speed the game up at all. I think it sometimes slows it down even more, but it's another story for another day.
5: <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it can't, it can lead lead to bad matchups, right? Like if you have a lefty in your bullpen and you put him in there and maybe, I don't know, like the inning continues, you're hoping to get out of there within those you know, the first or second guy. And now the third guy is bad matchup. And now the inning's going to continue and it's going to snowball. And then it's like, are you going to leave him out there? Are you going to bring in another guy? The inning could have been over. I don't know. Like you could slice it up a bunch of different ways, but you know, lefties, it's almost like now you got to, you really got to prove that you can get righties out and you got to earn that trust from your manager that, that you can handle those, at least those three guys, you know, so that you can, you know, slide in where they need you.
1: I'll wrap it up with this. You said like there's parts of this that are very familiar to you this spring and there's parts of it very different. I mean, the roster is almost completely overhauled (laughs) since 2019. I count maybe six of you who are going to be on the opening day roster who were part of the World Series roster. It's you, Soto, Robles, Corbin, Anibal, potentially, and Rainey. A few others like Strasburg, Joe Ross, who are going to be on the IL and a couple others who were around, Fetty, Voth, but weren't on the World Series roster. So From your standpoint, like, I know you said you came in and said, this isn't a nostalgia tour, like you're not back for that. How do you and how does this team kind of move past that and kind of create a new thing this year, you know, without completely forgetting about what happened in the past?
5: One thing that I think the energy around camp is like, you know, a lot of people are talking about other teams in the NL East, the Mets, the Braves, the Marlins have made some new additions. The other Phillies made some big signings and it's like we're kind of under the radar like and and I think we we kind of have like a little bit of a chip on our shoulder we feel like we have something to prove to the rest of the division and to the rest of the league and I think we have the guys to do it I think the mix that we have is really good like we have some veterans in some key spots you know bringing in a guy like Nelson Cruz on the offensive side and and um you know pitching we brought in uh Steve Cschek and and uh, uh another Former Nat Tyler Clifford is back. You know, these are guys that have won throughout their careers, that have had success throughout their careers, and they want to do that here. And so I think it's kind of that new blood when you get those new faces in here, it can kind of re energize, you know, the group as a whole because now you're bringing in guys that, you know, they're looking to do what we did in 2019. And rather than living in the past and thinking about 2019 all the time, when you do have those new guys come in and you get that fresh perspective from them, you know, I think that can help you turn the page and find your new identity. And, you know, I think that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a younger team, predominantly a younger team. I know we have some older guys like myself that'll skew our average age, but like, you know, the predominantly younger group that, is looking that's hungry and that's looking to prove themselves. So that's why it's been a fun camp, man. And, um, you yeah, I love the group that we have and I know we're really excited to get back up North to DC. Well, Sean, we appreciate your time
0: very much. We wish you good health and good success. And I know that this June 5th will mark your 10 year anniversary as a big leaguer. Uh, you made your major league debut <laughs> June 5th, 2012. So maybe you have more gifts coming to you from the Nats. Who knows? <laughs>
5: Mark your calendars. Let's go.
0: <laughs> Appreciate it. All the best, Sean. Thank you so much. Thanks for
5: having me, guys. 2-0.
3: A count. Swinging a ground ball right side. Toes you to his left. Has it. Edge of the outfield. Grass. Throttle to Zimmerman at first. It's a one, two, three inning for Sean Doolittle. Getting the Nationals to within three outs of a trip back to Los Angeles for a decisive Game 5 of this National League
0: Division Series. All right. So good stuff from Sean Doolittle. Very much appreciate him joining us here on the Nats Chat podcast. Mark, do you think that Davey is going to have like certified closer, certified setup guy? Or to begin this season, is the bullpen just going to be you try things, you see what works, and then maybe eventually you settle into roles for guys?
1: It's funny, Al, you should mention that because if anybody goes to massinsports.com on Monday morning, I'm actually going to have an article about that very thing where Davey said to start the year, we're probably not going to see a designated closer. I think he wants to see how this plays out. And it's not necessarily a sign that they don't have anybody. I think they have a few people who could do it. But with a short spring, you haven't really gotten a chance to try guys out in different spots. Sometimes these things just have to happen naturally and you get a sense of, okay, this guy is better at this than that, or it's a good look to start with this guy in the eighth inning and then go to this other one in the ninth. And So I think what you're going to see, at least in the outset, is rather than a specific inning, you may see that certain pitchers match up better with certain parts of the lineup. I think Doolittle talked about this in our interview with him as well. And playing the matchups in that regard more than anything. So don't necessarily expect that one guy is going to have like three save opportunities early on. We don't know how many save opportunities they're going to have at all as a team. You hope that there are several, but there may not be a whole lot the way the season opens up. But don't be surprised if it's a few different guys who get those chances. And then over the course of several weeks or even a month, you might start to see patterns develop and figure out, okay, here's who makes sense for which inning.
0: Yeah. And even if things were more settled, I mean, just think to back to even the Nats' good teams, the playoff teams. How many times did the Nats begin the season with a guy as their closer and end the season with that guy as their closer? It felt like almost every year, whoever you thought was the closer, that ended up changing maybe even multiple times over the course of a season.
1: I wrote this at some point several years back, and I don't remember the exact number. I don't have it in front of me. But there was a stretch of, honestly, something like the last seven or eight World Series champions ended with a different closer closing out the world series than they had at the start of the season. There are very few Kenley Jansen, Craig Kimbrel's out there. In most cases, somebody emerges along the way either internally or externally. We certainly saw that with the Nationals in 2019.
0: Yeah, no doubt. To me, it's more about you have an A bullpen and a B bullpen and you have a collection of guys who you trust in the later innings or who you trust in close games. And to get caught up in close or eighth inning, it's like it changes every year with every team. We've seen it so many times by now. I, you know, Maybe we're starting to get away from having to label people with uh, every bullpen every season. All right. We have delayed long enough. It is prediction time for the Nationals in the 2022 season. Would you like to go first and offer the Mark Zuckerman forecast for the Nats in 2022?
1: Sure. I'll go first. I don't know if mine is going to be more or less optimistic than yours or pessimistic as it may be. Listen, I'm going 67 and 95. And some might say that 67 sounds a little high. I wouldn't be surprised if you feel that way. I I don't know what your pick is as we record this. My thinking is this. I don't necessarily think they're going to be on a 67 win pace all year. I think it could be lower than that to start. I think they could hit the all-star break well on their way to 100 plus losses. But I am banking on what I mentioned earlier, this team getting better as the season goes on because of reinforcements in terms of prospects getting called up other guys getting healthy and things starting to come together. I would really like to see this team look better at the end of the year than it did at the beginning. Could they lose 100 plus? Yes, they absolutely could. I'm holding out a little hope here that August and September of 2022 are a lot better than August and September of 2021 were because those were really bad months.
0: All right. uh, Your prediction was more optimistic than mine, although not by much. 63-99. and The Nationals avoid the indignity of a 100-loss season. Cade Cavalli pitches a gem on the final day of the regular season to avoid that 100 loss. Incidentally, the Nationals will conclude their season with a three-game series at the Mets, so Cavalli will spoil the Mets with a gem. On Wednesday, October
1: 5th. Mets will miss the playoffs by a game? Is that what you're saying?
0: Exactly. Cavalli will cost the Mets. I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully he'll outdo Max Scherzer or Jacob deGrom. We'll see. But uh, look, I-, I think this season, it- it's about really two things. Number one, the promising young players, the potential building blocks, giving you reason for optimism. Josiah Gray, Cade Cavalli. Hopefully, Victor Robles bounces back. Hopefully, Lane Thomas proves himself to be more legit. Hopefully, Kbert Ruiz certifies his status as having been one of the top catching prospects in the sport. You know, it's awesome to have Juan Soto, but you know we know what Soto is. It's Soto's—I don't want to say he's an afterthought for this season, but it's almost like okay, he's great. We get that, but you know, like the conversation is is about much more than that right now. But I really think that that's what this season is about. And then the other thing is, Mike Rizzo very much needs to add to his prospect inventory. And so, who can you flip? Who can you trade? to get you back, guys. Josh Bell, to me, is a candidate. I think any of these infielders, Cesar Hernandez, Alcides Escobar, maybe Michael Franco, a candidate if either guy plays well. I think if Patrick Corbin pitches well, he 100% should be a candidate. I don't know if a team's going to be willing to deal for him, but you know he only has two seasons left on this contract after this season. If the Nets are willing to take on some of the money, I think maybe that's something you could do. Obviously, these relievers, a Steve Ciszek, a Tyler Clippard, a Sean Doolittle, I would even say a Tanner Rainey. If Tanner Rainey is lights out, I don't think you build with relievers. If you can turn him into someone, go ahead and do that. So I really look at it that way. You know, the other thing too is this. Last season was tough. Last season also was ugly at times. You know, there was an ugliness to last season. The Steven Strasburg injury. You know, we remember the Starling Castro situation. We had, remember, gunfire outside of Nationals Park on one Saturday night. So it would be nice to have a smoother season, more of a feel good season. And I think you could have that if the young players play well. The concern would be that the Nats aren't good this season and they're losing with these older cast offs who we all know are roads to nowhere, I think that would be particularly troubling. If you're losing with young guys as they're getting better, I think people can stomach that. I think the fan base is sophisticated enough to be accepting of that. So, you know, there's like a right way to be a bad team and a wrong way to be a bad team. I just hope that if the Nats are a bad team, they do it the right way. And you know what? If they're not bad, if they somehow are a lot better than we think, then all the better.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And is there a path That could see them exceed expectations. There is. It's going to require a lot of things coming together and other things that we haven't even forecasted not falling apart because God knows what else bad could happen. There is a path to that, but I agree. I think it's really about less about the wins and the losses and more just about the mood, the reasons for optimism. If the reasons for optimism go back way back to 2007 when that's probably the season that they the least was ever thought of them going into it. People were saying they're going to lose 120 games. They wound up 73-89. And, and You thought, oh, hey, this team played pretty well. They're kind of scrappy. And then Jim Bowden went out and tried to make them into a winner the next year when they opened Nationals Park in 2008, and they lost 100 games. Well, why were they good in 2007? Because guys like Dimitri Young and Ronnie Belliard did well, and then they got a contract extensions as a result. That's not the way to go about it now. You want the positives to come from the actual building blocks, not from the short-termers, and then you certainly don't want to lock up the short-termers if they don't seem like they are going to be a part of the future or not. There's a different person running the organization now than it was back then. My sense is that he knows how to do this.
0: Yeah, uh, I think we all trust Mike Rizzo a lot more than Jim Bowden. Time to activate, baby, as Jim Bowden once said about Manny Acta. All right, uh, you tell us what you think. Give us your season predictions, your desires for the Nationals in 2022. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email us to Natschatpodcast at gmail.com if you would like to sponsor The Runaway Express, that is the Nats Chat Podcast. Hit up the mastermind behind all of this, Tim Shover's. You can uh, reach him again at our email address, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We do have a new red Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt that is coming. You have two things that are coming. Kate Cavalli and a new red Natch Chat Podcast t-shirt. I'm not sure which one is more anticipated. It's debatable, but you'll be able to get that new Natch Chat Pod t-shirt by going to our website, natschatpodcast.square.site. site. You can get our previous t-shirts at natschatpodcast.square.site site as well. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please Give the podcast a five-star rating. If you haven't yet done that, please write her one or two cents review saying how much that you like the podcast. The ratings and the reviews help to make the podcast successful, and we very much appreciate all of you who do rate and review the pod. A shout-out to our friends in Richmond, one ESPN in Richmond. We're back on Sunday mornings at 9. If you're out of the Richmond listening area, you can listen on ESPNRichmond.com and all Nationals radio highlights on Natch Chatter, courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. After every Nats game, we are with you with an installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. And so for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you after game number one of the Nats 2022 season next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Two little sets. Now
3: the kick in the 2-2 pitch. He struck him out at a National League Championship Series game one. Curly W is in the books. For the first time ever in the National League Championship Series, the Nationals are a winner in game one of the best of seven series. They shut out St. Louis two to nothing.
1: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.